Hey guys, this is Cobain the Christian. I keep trying to record this video, but I keep getting sidetracked to a degree which even I can't tolerate. Before getting into the subject of this video, I wanted to thank everybody who has become a patron. It has been extremely encouraging and, in fact, moving. For those who are not familiar with you know, the, the process, at the moment I am investing a great deal of time into not only the YouTube channel itself, but also into related work such as talking one-on-one -on -one with those who need help and I think would benefit from it. Uh, whom I encounter on YouTube, uh, so, so on and so forth. Uh, so the Patreon is really uh, instrumental in facilitating a steady stream of content. Now, I haven't made any content since Saturday, which I'm very sorry for. In part, that's because of the fact that I have been moving into a new place. In part, uh, it is just because I'm getting into the swing of this kind of new habit um, still but that will change as time goes forward um and if it doesn't change then i'm not i will not charge people for for a, a highly limited amount of content there are three tiers in patreon there's the five dollar a month tier there is the ten dollar a month tier and then there's the twenty dollar a month tier now they these provide various benefits of course each higher level includes that which is in the preceding tiers. Uh, the one I want to mention right now is the weekly uh, book reviews. Uh, the goal was to do two book reviews a week, but to do at least one book review a week. And if I go a week without making one, then I'm going to make up for that in the next week. Uh, $5 and up will guarantee you access to a third to one half of these weekly book reviews. And $10 and up will guarantee you access to all of the weekly book reviews. Uh, this is a new feature is at the $20 and up tier. I will guarantee you an hour of one-on-one -on -one conversation about a question which you have about which I have something perhaps useful to say. Now, I will still be talking to people whom I think would benefit from it, but there are a lot of people who are reaching out, which is totally fine, which I, I'm happy about. I, Feel free to contact me at my at my phone number, which I've posted pretty much everywhere. Um, uh, but I do have to find some way to prioritize one over another and manage the time effectively. So one way to do that is to guarantee at least one hour of time for those who contribute $20 and up every month. That doesn't mean only uh, only one hour, and it does not mean certainly that I will charge you more if we end up going to two, three, four hours. Um, in fact. Uh, if we start talking, it's probable that we, we may well go for more than an hour. Uh, in any case, let's get into the subject of today's video, which is the identity of the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. Now, I remember when this question was first raised to me, and it is when I was having my initial doubts about Christianity. And this question seemed to me to be uniquely troubling, and I couldn't quite put my finger on why that was at the time. And since that time, I have engaged with others who had a similar experience and similarly intuited that this question was uniquely troubling for them. Since that time, I think the reason that it was troubling was because of the way that it revealed and underscored certain unexamined assumptions about the interpretation of the Bible, which, when examined, were so obviously dubious as to indicate one's capacity to read this text at all, which of course would raise questions about Christianity, which turns on the identity 
of Jesus as the unifying principle of Old and New Testaments. And when you read the uh, Genesis chapter 3, it is not immediately obvious from that text that one should identify this figure with the devil, at least not as we read it in English, at least not as we read it without the benefits of knowing biblical symbolism. So, a very common idea among biblical critics is that Genesis 3 is not a profound story. It is not a story about the collapse of creation into corruption and death. And it is not a story about a great celestial conflict between God, man, and the devil. Instead, it is an etiology, or an origin story, of why snakes don't have legs and why women are afraid of snakes. Now that may sound to you absurd on an immediate level, and I, of course, am perfectly happy to mock biblical critics uh, at uh, the earliest available opportunity, but it should be said that many people who read the text and assume the figure is the devil simply would not be able to defend that view under scrutiny. The question must always be asked, why do we read the text this way? Why is it that when we read Genesis 3, we should identify this figure with a supernatural being? Does not the text say that he himself was an animal? And if it says he was an animal, then why should we say he was anything more than an animal? Does not the text say, on your belly you shall go? And if it says that, why should we interpret it as anything other than an etiology or an origin story for why snakes don't have legs, for us snakes lost their legs? These are reasonable questions to ask, but I am going to argue that they are inappropriate conclusions for someone who claims deep knowledge of Scripture. Because the evidence of the Bible is conclusive that the figure of Genesis 3 is a supernatural being and that his story in the chapter is programmatic and essential for understanding that which comes afterwards. So, I've subtitled this, Who is the Nahash of Genesis 3? And I've asked it in those terms because the word Nahash can be interpreted or translated in multiple different but related ways. And as we will see, the meaning of this word, while it includes the figure of the serpent, is more complicated than simply a one-to-one -one equivalence with the beast, the serpent. I am going to argue that the devil, as he is known in Christian theology and in the New Testament, did not attain a new prominence in the New Testament, but was just as essential in the Old Testament. You will often hear things like, the ancient Israelites did not know about the resurrection of the dead. But that's not the traditional view. And you'll even hear this from, from conservative Christians. I, I think it's just that they not they take for granted that this is the way that things are, that this is what the Old Testament is about. But in reality, if you take Genesis chapter 3 to be about the origin of death, which without question it is about the origin of death, attempts to deny this are just quite honestly foolish. Um, Adam was expelled from the tree of life tree of life granted man the capacity to live forever because God says uh, we have to cut him out lest he take of it and live forever. And if tree of life grants the ability to live forever, and if Adam had had access to the tree of life before his expulsion, well then what happens when he's expelled? He, uh, he meets the origin of death. 
So that that really even shouldn't be questioned, though figures such as uh, James Kugel uh, try to make an argument, but I think it, it's 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 desperate and it's a foolish argument. And before continuing, I want to uh, make a few notes about the way in which one should proceed in making sense of the central themes of the Old Testament. Because very often one will gain the impression that the scripture until the New Testament and, and really until the letter to the Romans has very little to say about Adam. Consequently, it is assumed even by some conservative Christians that Adam was not a major figure in the mind of the biblical authors. But if we if we understand Adam to be a major figure, then his expulsion from the tree of life brought about death for the human family. And if there was a promise of the seed crushing the head of the serpent and reversing and undoing the death that he brought, then it seems only natural that one would affirm the general resurrection of the dead. Now, this is indeed the traditional view of the matter that uh, the patriarchs of antiquity knew of the resurrection of the dead in the Last Judgment, and I believe that it is supported by many texts in the Psalms and in the wisdom literature, which are often read uh, uh, as not teaching the resurrection of the dead only because it is believed that they simply couldn't have written about it that early. But that, of course, is circular. And I will also note that the Samaritans affirm the resurrection of the dead despite not affirming anything after the Pentateuch and, uh, in one way, the book of Joshua. The Samaritans still affirm a concept of the Messiah despite rejecting the kingdom of David being course, identified as heirs to the legacy of the northern kingdom, which rebelled against the house of David. They still affirm Messiah. They still affirm the resurrection of the dead. Um, so we shouldn't take for granted many of these uh, uh, views about the development of Israelite religion, uh, that, that Satan and these ideas are, are, are much later concepts. I think they go back to Abraham. Indeed, I think they go back to Adam. But the point I want to make about the way in which we read the cumulative nature of the scriptures is about the way in which we can find Adam and these themes in Genesis 3 later in the Bible. Scripture works cumulatively, and here's what I mean, and I'm taking this image from James Jordan. When you read the phrase, be fruitful and multiply, you have to think about it to realize that fruit is a metaphor. To say be fruitful is to make an analogy between human beings and plants. On the third creation day, we're told that God made uh, plants in which there was seed, and thus Abraham has seed. There's the seed of the woman. There's the seed of the serpent. Israel is analogized to a tree. The human family is described as a great cosmic tree. The church grows uh, out of a mustard seed. And you can find, you know, all sorts of extensions of this imagery, which is predicated on this initial analogy. Be fruitful indicates an analogy to fruit trees. And so, 
when you look at sanctuaries, well, they're made out of wood, and wood is the restructuring of trees. Olive wood is the restructuring of a kind of fruit tree. So this imagery can be extended in many different ways. But there's another layer, which we can't skip over, which is that be fruitful and multiply is not extended directly to man from fruit trees. Instead, it is extended to man intermediately through the application of that imagery to fish and to birds. Now, on the fifth creation day, God creates schools of fish and flocks of birds. And if we are attentive to the symbolic aspects of the world, it is quite remarkable that fish and birds seem to actually have quite a number of similarities in terms of their relation to everything which surrounds them. Both of them can move in three dimensions of space. Both of them move in highly organized uh, congregations, which we call schools of fish in the sea and flocks of birds in the sky. There's evidence, in fact, that the not the structure of these schools and of these flocks is irreducible. That it is not that one bird sees another moving slightly and responds so quickly that we, we, we can't even uh, differentiate uh, the second in between one bird's movement and the other's response. It's a field relationship. There is an immediate relationship binding them all together, which creates a whole that is larger and more complicated than the sum of the parts. But the fact that there's an analogy between fish and birds comes from the fact that they stand in a similar relation to the rest of the world and the fact that they are made on the third or on the fifth creation day, so on and so forth. And the fact that fruitfulness and multiplication is used first of fruit trees, then of fish and birds, and then of human beings creates an analogy not only between human beings and fruit trees, but also between human beings and fruit trees through something like birds. Then take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 22. It's usually headed various laws because most translators of the Bible simply have no idea what to make of why one law is placed next to another in Deuteronomy 22. But you find that right next to laws about childbearing, right next to laws about sexuality and reproduction, right next to laws about honoring your parents, Right next to laws about the household, you find this little law which says if you find a nest with eggs in it, you can take the eggs, but you have to leave the mother bird. Now, this has a strong relationship with the idea of fruitfulness as an extension of the creative power of God. I'm not going to get into this at the moment. I only raise it to show the cumulative nature of biblical imagery. So why is it that the later biblical texts do not quote-unquote explicitly, and that word explicitly doesn't really have a clear definition in this context, so we shouldn't throw it around wantonly. Why is it that later biblical authors do not quote-unquote explicitly refer to Adam, Eve, and the Garden of Eden? Well, it's because of this fact. The Bible is cumulative. So, the story of the planting of the Garden of Eden, the installation of Adam as its Lord and High Priest, the creation of Eve from his side as a helpmate, and the fall of Adam at the urging of the serpent, 
and then the consequent impact that has on the rest of the world comes through the mediation of the book of Leviticus. Essentially, what happens in Leviticus is that this story is restated in a much more detailed way, and it is restated in a ritual context. Now, this operates in two directions. On the one hand, the ritual restatement of Genesis 2 to 3 helps us to interpret what Genesis 2 to 3 is all about. So there is a backwards relationship. We extend Leviticus back into Genesis 2 to 3, and we can interpret Genesis 2 to 3 thereby. But there's also a forwards relationship. The fact that the two are bound to one another in this textual relation means that liturgy has a particular significance in view of what we are told about creation, Eden, and man. What exactly is going on in liturgy? Well, what's going on in liturgy is that man is exercising his divinely appointed task, which is internal to his nature, to be an extension of God's creative hand. Genesis chapter 2, God creates man and then plants a garden and then puts Adam into the garden and then there's a story about Adam's unfaithfulness and then God issues curses. In Genesis chapter 9, after the recreation of the world, it's not God who plants something, it's Noah. Noah plants a vineyard. Noah rests in his tent fulfilling God's sabbatical rest. It's Noah who issues blessings and curses. So Canaan is identified with the serpent who is cursed directly. The Canaanites are thus then described in serpentine terms. The serpent is associated with the Nephilim or the giants. The giants are found in the land of Canaan. You can find all of these associations which are not arbitrary but intersect with each other and mutually interpret each other so that we can understand both as greater and more significant than either would either would be taken alone. Leviticus thus provides an exegesis of Genesis 2 to 3 which both clarifies Genesis 2 to 3 and explains what exactly is going on in the book of Leviticus. God's presence is being extended into the world. In the book of Leviticus we have a restatement of the curses of Genesis 3 in a very detailed form. This is Leviticus chapters 11 to 15. And then when Adam and Eve are clothed in garments of skin, we meet Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, where the high priest, as a representative of the entire human family, is invested with clothes of glory and beauty, thereby facilitating and signifying the redemption of the entire human family from the exile of death. Much more could be said about that. Much more will be said at a future time. But consider the curse on the serpent, which is the first curse in Genesis chapter 3. Well, in Leviticus chapter 11, we meet a host of unclean animals. Now, this statement of unclean animals follows a narrative where you have a sanctuary which is built and consecrated. Now, I want you to compare Exodus chapter 15 with other language of the sanctuary, 
God plants his sanctuary on the holy mountain. So the, the imagery of planting a garden and of building a sanctuary has already been linked. This is not something that we are arbitrarily building. It's already been linked together. You have a sanctuary which is built slash planted and then consecrated. You have priests who represent Adam and Eve. They're placed in the sanctuary. They work in the sanctuary. And then you have strange fire being brought before the Lord, and this produces death for Nadab and Abihu. Uh, and then we are given the laws of purity and impurity, Leviticus 11 to 15. Now, so many things could be said about this. Uh, but something which just popped into my head, which is kind of interesting, is the relationship between fire and the Garden of Eden and the fall. Now, what happens after the fall? Well, God places a flaming sword and a cherub to guard the Garden of Eden. So we see the relationship of fire with the fall uh, with the Garden of Eden uh, already in Genesis uh, chapter 3. Well, fire and sword are the sacrificial instruments, okay? So you cut something and you burn it up on God's altar as an ascension offering. It's not whole burnt offering. Olah means ascension offering. You rise up into the presence of God by the smoke of the sacrificial offering. The link between fire and the consumption of the tree of knowledge, it's a premature self-exaltation, is remarkable because we find this very same link in the story of uh, Prometheus. Prometheus takes fire from the gods and gives it to mankind. And this is the turning point in the primeval history of mankind. Now, Prometheus, I believe, essentially represents a memory of uh, a diabolical propaganda. You see the same thing in Ugarit, uh, where you have the so-called Baal cycle. There's a war in heaven, a rebellion occurs among the gods, but the rebels win this time, and Baal takes over, uh, replacing the unjust uh, Lord of the Council who had created all things. Now, this is diabolical propaganda. Same thing occurs here, as you can see in the story of Prometheus, who, in this case, is the good guy, uh, if we might speak in those terms. Uh, Prometheus takes fire, gives it to mankind, whereas in the story of Genesis, mankind prematurely takes of the tree of knowledge and thus is made into, by their own will, a people who relates to God sacrificially before they are really prepared to do so. And by sacrificially, I do not mean, you know, that it would have occurred by blood before the fall, but that in sacrificial worship, by fire, you ascend into God's presence, and they simply were not prepared for glorification at that point. So much could be said, uh, but it is analogous to what I spoke about in an earlier video on biblical grammar, raising the question of, well, why is it that the memory of the Tower of Babel, which is an historical event, why is it that the memory of the Tower of Babel appears in so many cultures converted into the story of a cosmic tree? Now, you do find in culture stories of a tower at which the world's languages were born. The tower was blown over by a great gust of wind, as uh, Josephus records, but the Bible does not. You find Aboriginal Australian stories, you find Chinese stories, you find 
lots of traditions around the world which confirm Josephus's witness, even though most of them were not even remotely near to Josephus. One of those little things which is super cool because it confirms the actual reality of the biblical narrative of the cosmos. Uh, but why is it that in so many traditions it's a gust of wind which blows down a tree, or as in one Aboriginal tradition, a gust of wind which blows the world's languages out of its branches? How, what relationship does a tower have to a tree? In our own minds, these two concepts uh, are not close at all. They're very, very uh, separate from each other. We wouldn't think of them in the same breath. But in the biblical and symbolic grammar of the world, tree and tower or you know ziggurat sanctuates a ladder to heaven these two things are right next to each other such that you can easily see how one gets converted to another and so we see the same thing in the retelling of the story of the fall by bringing in uh the imagery of fire you know little tidbit you know this is kind of my my thing yeah i always go on tangents but I don't get a lot of complaints about it, actually, so I figure perhaps people actually enjoy some of the stuff that I talk about on these tangents. Whatever. I enjoy it. So, returning to where we started off in this tangent, Nadab and Abihu, the priests who have just been invested for service in the tabernacle, which is a Garden of Eden, uh, 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 piece of architecture it's a place where you engage directly with the presence of god uh, they've brought strange fire before the lord meaning they have approached god in a way that god did not instruct and this is objectively dangerous the rules that god sets up for managing his relationship with the children of israel are for their own protection objectively speaking as a matter of the qualities which are intrinsic or internal to human nature, the fall of man has certain necessary consequences in terms of what happens in the human creature and how the human creature's descendants are bound up in that because the human family is a single organism. The image of God refers to corporate mankind, the one human family. As such, multiplication reproduction is not one image of God producing another separate image of God. It is a single tree branching and budding, but it's the same organism and the same life flows through the entire thing. So the danger which is presented by the presence of God is simply a matter of what is internal to the qualities of what makes God, God, and the qualities of what makes man, man in his fallen state. So after the fall of Nadab and Abihu, as it were, after the recapitulation of the building of the garden, or the planting of the garden, and the fall of Adam and Eve, you have an extended theological exegesis of the curses of Genesis chapter 3. Here's just a bird's eye view. Leviticus chapter 11. Unclean animals. Well, the first curse is on the serpent. Only two places in the Hebrew Bible do you see the word on your belly. The word translated into English is on your belly. Can you guess where they are? Leviticus 11 and Genesis 3. This is one of the things that I learned in 2014, which helped utterly 
incapacitate the credibility of any kind of biblical source criticism, because these are supposed to be two very different and separate sources. And it's not only that the same word is used, and that it's a rare word, it's that it's used in a context which makes sense independently of the use of that word. In other words, we've already discovered that Leviticus 11 corresponds according to the literary structure of the book with the curse on the serpent. And having concluded that, we find that it's in this very context that an extremely rare word is used the only other time besides its use in Genesis chapter 3. And then finally, kind of the, the most expansive concentric circle here, the way in which all of these kind of relationships are knit together is situated in a context, theologically speaking, that makes sense as a whole. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. If you can read the text coherently from beginning to end in a way that makes sense of it in terms of a unified center and a single literary purpose, this itself constitutes an argument that such purpose is inherent and internal to the text and is not imposed by the reader. So who is the Nakash in this light? What does this imply for the identity of the serpent of Genesis chapter 3? Is he indeed just a snake? After all, you meet a, it's part of the animals who crawl on their belly in Genesis chapter uh, or in Leviticus chapter 11, are snakes. So might we say on this basis that the serpent of Genesis 3 er, is just a snake? Well, this is one of the reasons that I have placed this icon before your eyes of the four faces of the cherubim. The four faces of the cherubim have many theological and interpretive layers on top of each other. And each layer relates to the one above and the one below. The first of the four faces, chronologically speaking, in terms of the thematic resonances, is the ox, which is the sacrificial animal. We begin with the era of the tabernacle, an era where Israel has no unified political structure. It's a collection of culturally alike city-states uh, and communities who worship uh, or should worship the same god uh, uh, and are bound with a single tabernacle where God dwells. This is the ox. And then you have the lion. The lion signifies kingship. His mane is like a crown. It's like the extension of divine glory by which God rules the world. And we see in the time of King Solomon, one of the images on the ten water stands is two of the four faces of the cherubim, which are the ox and the lion, because those are the eras which have transpired, at least in part. And third, you have the eagle. The eagle is the prophetic animal. The eagle moves from place to place, as Jesus says of the one who is born of the Spirit. And I want you to note this. It's often uh, thought that, Je or it's often assumed that Jesus is speaking directly of the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit blows where he wishes. Uh, no one knows where it comes from, where it goes. It's actually referring to he who is born of the Spirit. Just read the text directly. Um, I, I, uh, that was not an exact quotation, by the way, so 
check out John chapter 3, uh, read through that. Uh, the prophetic era in the Bible is one of Elisha and Elijah, uh, one where whirlwinds come and take the prophet into the heavens. It's one where they travel from place to place. They don't remain in one place for very long, but they move. They're always on the move. Uh, Elijah is traveling from place to place. He and his successor are anointing Gentile kings like Hazael, the king of Syria. Jonah uh, is blown by a great wind, which of course signifies the spirit ultimately to Nineveh, uh, and so on and so forth. The eagle as this flying animal, as the one who moves through heaven on the wings of the wind, the eagle is associated with prophetic imagery. This corresponds in turn with the successive anointing of the ear, the hand, and the foot in the ritual system. The ear signifies priesthood. You open your ears to hear the word of God and obey. It's not a matter of digestion. It's not a matter of wisdom. It's not a matter of reasoning out conclusions from scriptural premises. It is simply a matter of hearing what God does and obeying exactly what he does. That's why in the era of the judges and in the time of the wilderness, Israel's disobedience is not disobedience of acting unwise. It's simply of disobeying directly what God says to do. Think of what happens in childhood in human beings. Uh, little children do not get in trouble or should not get in trouble for behaving unwisely in the sense that we use that word of adults. Uh, children are told, uh, don't hit your sister, and then they hit their sister. Well, it wasn't a complicated issue. You're not supposed to stick your hand in the cookie jar, and they stick their hand in the cookie jar. The ear signifies opening, um, uh, uh, opening one's mind to listen and obey the word of God. The hand is the instrument of dominion, it is the instrument by which one grabs hold of the world, restructures it. This is what kings do. Look at the image of the king throughout the scriptures, and you will find that the king is an architect. He's a builder of things. Over and over and over again, kings are associated preeminently with two ideas. One of them is warfare. The other one is architecture. Warfare because warfare determines who genuinely exercises dominion over this or that territory. Dominion is, at bottom, the capacity to realize one's purpose in a particular sphere of influence. And when you win a war for sovereignty over a particular slice of land, it means you can legislate the way that you want to legislate in that slice of land. This might seem to you kind of obvious or trivial, but it's so helpful for me to get to the bottom of these concepts, what's the distilled essence of a concept signified by a word we use all the time? That is tremendously helpful for me, and I hope it is for at least uh, some of you. Um, and the other one is architecture, because it signifies what? The same thing. Architecture is the practical outworking of the sovereignty that a king acquires in warfare. This is why in the scriptures, the temple is built when Israel has been given rest from their enemies all around. King David completes the conquest, and thus the temple can be built. With peace in the land, the world can be 
restructured as God willed it. Conquest of the land from those who would do it harm is the precondition for its glorification. Glorification is the fruit of its liberation. One final example, and then we will uh, move at long last to the next slide uh, of this principle, is in the kings of Persia. Now, the kings of Persia worshipped the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, but in fact, God was known all over the world. If you look at a phenomenon called uh, original monotheism, or the quote-unquote sky god phenomenon, you will find that all across the world, throughout antiquity, and indeed uh into relatively contemporary times among so-called unreached people groups, there was worship, there was knowledge of, and devotion towards one who was considered the creator of all things, the source from which all things came, and the goal to which all things returned. He was the ultimate yardstick for what was just and what was unjust, and he determined all things. Now, very often, a people group would feel that he was too distant to relate to directly in sacrificial worship, but knowledge of the just, the faithful, the creator God was not limited to Israel and its immediate neighbors. In fact, you can find it everywhere on the planet, and you will find him under names associated with the heavens or the sky. This is why anthropologists have called it the sky god phenomenon. Why is it that in China... This one God is called Emperor of Heaven. Why is it that he is called in Mesoamerica the Heart of Heaven? Why is it that he is called across many African cultures the God of Heaven? Why is this so common? Well, look at what the, what the scriptures say. Genesis chapter 14, the Lord, the God of Heaven. Well, who spoke that? Melchizedek, the Gentile. The book of Daniel, the God of heaven, again and again and again. What about the book of Jonah? Well, in the book of Jonah, you've got Gentiles. Uh, Jonah speaks of the Gentiles. He says, I, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. And at that, they tremble with great fear because they knew that there was a God above all gods. And if Jonah was a servant of that God, well, then they truly had no hope for salvation from the storm which he sent because he ruled the sea and the waves. We could go on and on and on. With all of this, point being, the God of heaven was known throughout the ancient world by Israel and the nations alike, and the Persians were worshippers of the God of heaven. If you study Persian imperial ideology in the Achaemenid period, it's quite remarkable how many convergences exist between it and the book of Daniel and the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the book of Zechariah, all of this prophetic literature centered around what God was doing at this period of history. And if you believe the Bible, uh, I think you can find the reason for this. Uh, they worshipped the God of heaven, and when Cyrus came into the city, he was met by the one who was the de facto ruler of the city, that is, the prophet Daniel himself. Daniel had been made third ruler in the kingdom by Belshazzar, who was the second ruler in the kingdom, second only to Nabonidus, who wasn't at home at the, that point, so Daniel was the leading political authority in the city. Well, when he meets Cyrus, who is called in the book of Daniel, Darius the Mede, uh, it was a, a member of the Persian Empire, was a joint empire between the Medes and the Persians, so Cyrus is his Persian name. It makes perfect sense that he was known also by a Median throne name, which is Darius, and that's what he's called in the book of Daniel. 
uh, and he is associated particularly with the Medians because Isaiah, being written in a time where the Persians were not yet prominent, uh, prophesied uh, of the exile uh, uh, of the defeat of Babylon in terms of the Medes, and Daniel is referring back to uh, the book of Isaiah and other prophetic literature. So Cyrus meets Daniel. He believes in the God of heaven. Daniel shows him where he had been spoken of in Isaiah. Well, and thus you find the Cyrus Cylinder, which is one instance of a text which was sent out to uh, most of his new subjects. Cyrus Cylinder uses language taken directly from the book of Isaiah. In any case, the essence of so-called Persian imperial ideology, which is that, which is that Ahura Mazda, which is the one God, the God of heaven. Uh, we should be careful not to retroject uh, later Zoroastrian ideas into this early period, assuming that just because they're there in the Zoroastrian age, that they must have been there um, in this early period. Well, in the early period, there was no, there's no definitive evidence that Zoroaster was known as a figure. He may have been, but uh, there's no evidence that he was an essential figure. Uh, and uh, much of the evidence we get about Zoroastrianism and the concept of Ahura Mazda is uh, from the Sasanid period, which is 800 years after this. So just keep that in mind before you say, well, this can't be the true God because Zoroastrians believe this and that, which is incompatible with what the Bible says. Um, so essential to uh, the Persian belief about the king, which you find in things like the uh, Behistun inscription, uh, uh, going from memory, is the Behistun inscription, I believe. Um, it is engraved on the cliffside by Darius, and the essence of it is that the nations were warring with each other, but God set the king over the nations so that they might be harmonized and so that they might have peace. Well, if you then look at how this is expressed in uh, the imagery he presents, it's a representative of each of these cultures. And you can see one representative uh, kind of engraved on the cliff for each of the mentioned subject nations because they're wearing different clothes appropriate to their region. Uh, all of them come and participate in this new project. In the, I think it's a Su the Susa Palace Complex, you find similar imagery, and it's all about how each of these nations brought its own gifts to bear on building this palace complex, because the palace complex signifies the imperial household writ large, so the whole kind of political cosmos. So, Having conquered these peoples and exercised dominion in that way, or having acquired dominion in that way, you then restructure the world uh, by architecture. You build it up. So, is that immediately relevant to what we're talking about? Well, in one sense, everything is relevant to everything else. In another sense, you know, hey, it's my channel, and I think, I think it's interesting, and I hope some of you guys find it interesting as well. Let's uh, move on at long last. Satan is not a personal name. That is the foundation for understanding how the devil is actually found in Genesis chapter 3. We find, as we just mentioned, that there is some kind of association between the figure of Genesis 3 and animals. After all, it's animals who go on their belly in Leviticus 11. 
But we have to keep in mind that in Leviticus, and in fact in the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the notion of impurity, of uncleanness, is predicated on an association with death. An outflow of blood is unclean. Human death is the most unclean thing you can encounter. And unclean means you cannot safely engage with the presence of God. It doesn't mean you are uh, exceptionally sinful. It has a symbolic association with sin insofar as sin brings death. But uncleanness is a ritual category which uh, signifies the transmission of the contagion of death. So Numbers 19 describes how to purify uncleanness contracted by uh, contact with the human corpse. And all you have to be, all you have to do is to be in the same room with the human corpse. It's the most intense kind of uncleanness you find in the whole Hebrew Bible. So the uncleanness that comes from coming into contact with an animal which goes on its belly, like the serpent, is predicated in association with the serpent with death. And that's because going on your belly means you are moving through the dust. The serpent shall eat dust. And as we are about to talk, uh, as we're about to discuss, the eating of dust is all about shale, the grave. It's all about uh, the return of mankind to dust. And why association with an animal? Well, the serpent of Genesis 3, or as we should call him, the Nachash of Genesis 3, is associated with an animal in part because the angelic realm writ large is animalistic in association. What do I mean by that? Well, the Old Covenant was a covenant which corresponded in order to the first three phases of the cherubim. This is what I was getting at in the previous slide. You got the ox, the Mosaic period, you got the lion, the Davidic period, and you got the eagle, which corresponds to the prophetic period beginning with Elijah in the north and Isaiah in the south. Then you have the fourth phase, which is man. It is the human phase. Man sums up all other things. Man is he who gathers all the animals of the world into its house and who brings the animals under his protection or his destructive influence. In Canaan, you execute the domestic animals which were aligned with the Canaanites in terms of being brought under their household. Well, Noah brings salvation to those animals who are with him. It's always God makes a covenant to those who are with Noah. That phrase is used over and over again uh, because man is the instrument by which the animals uh, are included in this cosmic scale redemption. And animals are instruments by which mankind is tutored in the Old Covenant. Well, mankind is tutored in the Old Covenant because he is in his spiritual state of childhood. God wants to give man glory and honor, to put a crown on his head, but first he has to prepare and move through a period of development under the guidance of angels. James Jordan uses the very helpful image of a drill sergeant. A drill sergeant has authority over the officers-to-be and, in fact, can be very uh, uh, aggressive in exercising that authority. Nevertheless, it is understood by both parties that at the end of the day, the purpose of the exercise of that aggressive authority is for the development of the individual under training to a status of officer, after which his drill sergeant will salute him and acknowledge him as having primacy. And this is the plan for the angelic hosts as well. God creates the heavens and the earth. The heavens include the great commonwealth of celestial powers 
ministers and flames of fire, as Psalm 104 describes them in its day-by-day recapitulation of the creation week. Um, But man is the generation of the heavens and the earth. Man unifies both realms in himself. And thus, in the end, as Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, will judge angels. Angels are also associated with the tabernacle and the temple system, which are all about sacrificial worship. First, you learn about the building blocks of creation by studying the animals. God brings animals to Noah, and then, or God brings animals, pardon me, to Adam, and then he brings Eve to Adam, and then, as we will discuss, the great archangelic being comes to Adam and Eve as the third and most serious encounter. But angels and animals are associated in countless ways, but they they both are symbols, not in the sense of metaphors, but in the sense of uh, expressions which communicate the inner essence of the period under question. They are symbols in common of the Old Covenant age. An old covenant which begins not with Moses but with Adam and which is centered on the preparation of the world for the incarnation of the Son in and through the human family as the instrument of preparation. Uh, And that would be true even without the fall. So we can see there's a correspondence between angels and animals which provides a starting point for thinking that the devil and the serpent may be the same figure. And by devil... Devil wasn't a personal name any more than Satan is. I simply mean the Christian figure who is identified as the supernatural enemy of mankind. Now, Satan is not a personal name. I want to begin with that point and close off this discussion with that point because of how important it is. Very often, even though it's recognized that uh, the Satan of the New Testament is referred to by other titles... It seems to be an implicit assumption, usually not made explicit, but implicit in the reasoning that one detects, that Satan is somehow a name which is more ultimate than his other names or titles. But in reality, this is not the case. You simply have, in both Old and New Testaments, a single figure who is described as the great enemy of mankind and of God. He is a rebel in God's heavenly court. He was created as part of the celestial powers and had the consequent authority over the world that came with that creation. Nevertheless, he rebelled and in his rebellion became an intractable enemy of both God and of mankind because of mankind's unique role in the divine plan. So just because the Old Testament does not often use the word Satan, it means nothing. The Old Testament has many names for the devil, just as the New Testament does. Satan is simply one of his titles, referring specifically to his identity as the accuser of our brothers, as the book of Revelation calls him. Now to speak of him as the Satan or as the accuser, is to call upon the imagery of the heavenly council. Now, as we've discussed before, the heavenly council 
is identical with the inner sanctuary of the temple, the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. The heavenly council is identical with God's throne room. The temple is the palace of God. The word temple and palace in the original language is identical. It's simply the palace of God. God has a throne there. God has counselors there. There are people who participate in the government of the cosmos. And some of them are faithful and some of them are unfaithful. So the temple is the palace. The palace is the location of the heavenly council. And because there is no such thing as a distinction between the judiciary and the quote-unquote executive branch, or as he would be called, the royal family, the king, there's no distinction. The, the king is the chief justice and legislator. Uh, there's no independent judiciary. And so the heavenly council is the divine courtroom, which is the palace of God, which is the temple. And so all of these kind of uh, uh, families of discourse find within themselves an appropriate title for that great enemy of mankind. When considering the narrative of cosmic history in terms of the great courtroom, the devil can be spoken of as the Satan, the accuser. He is a prosecuting attorney in God's courtroom. He seeks to bring the sentence of death upon mankind. This is what was going on in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, the devil tried to incite Israel to rebel against God adulterously such that God himself would have to sentence Israel to death and destruction. That's an important uh, point, and it's a very common move in the diabolical uh, playbook. But you have other titles which are used in other contexts. For example, you have Baal or Baal. Baal is the liturgical embodiment of the devil. This is why in the New Testament, Jesus calls the devil Baal Zebub, Lord of the Flies. Baal Zebub. Baal means Lord or Husband. Now, Baal could sometimes be used just as a kind of a word referring to God standing as Lord and Husband, but in the Hebrew Bible, it is referred, it describes the devil specifically as a counterfeit bridegroom. Think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians 11, we are told that Paul wants to, he feels a divine jealousy for the church as the bride of Christ. It is his utmost desire to present uh, uh to present the church to Christ as a pure bride. And it's in that context that we hear these words. He says in chapter 11, uh, verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now consider the context. The context is this divine jealousy. This is a word which is used in the context of marriage in the scriptures. It feels a divine jealousy. I betrothed you, Paul says, to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, to the Messiah. Christ is the bridegroom as the incarnation of the God of Israel. He's the bridegroom of the church as the church is the extension as a great commonwealth of nations of that covenant God made with Israel. Uh, and it's in this context 
that Paul describes himself as protecting the church, the bride, from the serpent. So Baal, Lord, Husband, Master, refers specifically to the devil as a counterfeit of what God wishes to do, of God's relation to the human family and more specifically to his uh, covenant people. Now, what does that entail? Well, take a look at Genesis 2. Genesis 2, Adam is given a task with respect to the garden. He is to guard the garden and he is to cultivate the garden. That is, he's supposed to preserve in it the goods that God has endowed it with and also extend those goods, to develop them, to mature the creation in continuity with the goodnesses which are already present therein. It's in this context that he receives a helpmate. He, God creates woman from the side of Adam. And throughout the scriptures, women are associated with uh, arboreal terms. Women are associated with gardens. You see this particularly in the Song of Songs, which uses all sorts of imagery of the temple, specifically in the context of the woman. You see in the imagery of building Eve. That's the word that's used. Built. God built Eve from the side of Adam. And the next time you see that word used is in Genesis 4, where Cain built a city for his son. And the scriptures describe the final eschatological temple as a temple which is a city, a city which is a temple permeated by the presence of God. Uh, temples are cities, cities are temples, and in fact, in the uh, law, a city is of a higher ritual standing than is the land. So there are certain laws about presence in a city which do not apply for presence in the land. And then, of course, you have uh, special cities which are under the governance of the Levitical order. As the cities of refuge are one sort of those. There's all sorts of ways in which this fabric of associations uh, shows up. Point being, women, in addition to being participants with Adam in implementing the human task, are also embodiments of the creation and are partners with man in declaring the entire relation of God and world. Meaning, those things which God entrusted to Adam with respect to the garden also apply in terms of Adam's relation and obligation to his bride, who is both a cultivator of the garden and an embodiment of the garden. So Adam's task is tested in the narrative of the fall itself. To guard Eve, well, the serpent comes and he lies. He lies to Eve. And Adam is right there, Genesis 3.6. Genesis 3.6 says her husband who was with her. Presumably, and I think this is what we're meant to take from the text, Adam wanted to see what was going to happen. The serpent said, you will not die. You will be as gods. You'll make members of the divine council. God wants to keep back glory for himself. He doesn't have good intentions for you. Just like when in the wilderness, Israel says, why did you bring us out here? Was it because there were no graves in Egypt? This is the central and governing lie of the devil. God has bad intentions for you. He's keeping something back. His, 
he is being duplicitous about what he really wants. Uh, Adam was meant to guard and cultivate. Well, we see the devil tests, or the serpent in this context, we will demonstrate he's the devil as we unfold this uh, series. Uh, his fidelity to that task is tested here because he comes and he attacks the woman by giving her something which is extremely dangerous. And what does Adam do? Does Adam say, no, you don't listen to him? No. Adam wants to see what happens. And Adam doesn't keep listening because he thinks, hey, I think the serpent is right. I think this is a good thing for my wife. Uh, Adam waits in silence, speaking neither for or against. He waits in silence because he's doing the very opposite of guarding his bride. He's using his bride as a, as a guinea pig. He wants to see what happens to her because he's thinking about his own glory and not about his bride at all. So he allows the serpent to usurp his divinely granted task to teach. And teaching is the correspondent to liturgical guarding. Read in the New Testament. This is what it's all about. You guard the church from false doctrine. You see in Revelation chapter um, 12, the devil first attacks the church. Then he pours out poisonous water to try to corrupt the church. And then he attacks the church's children. We see that pattern over and over again in church history. Look at Diocletian as an example. Diocletian first attacks the church, tries to kill its people. Well, that fails. The devil then tries to utilize Arianism to poison the church, to corrupt it. When that finally fails, Julian the Apostate comes on the scene and he tries to usurp the role of educating the uh, uh, children of the church uh, and immersing them in old classical paganism. Of course, he fails and the kingdom advances. In any case, the teaching of the bride is an Adamic priestly task. It is the task which is proper to the bridegroom. God is the divine bridegroom. God teaches his bride from Mount Sinai, preaching to them directly. Moses, as a prophet who is filled with the glory of God, is a proxy bridegroom, just as Paul describes himself. Moses stands in for God, or not so much stands in for God as, a, as he is an expression of God's purpose, his will, his operation, his activity, his arm, as the text would say. Uh, this is what it means to be a bridegroom. And then feed, cultivate. Adam is to cultivate the garden. Well, what does that mean in this context? Well, it means giving food because cultivation is everywhere associated with the development of agricultural splendor. In Israel's case, Israel was an agricultural society. Now there's... I'm trying to figure out whether to go into this, but you know what? What the hell? I've already gone on long enough, so I guess I might as well just continue. Um, in Genesis 2, you see there are two lands which are divided. One of them is Eden, and it produces food. The other is Havilah. It produces precious stones and precious metals. Now, these are fungible. 
And what I mean by that is when the scriptures speak of prosperity and they use the symbolic grammar of prosperity, they do so using agriculture, but you can also uh, it convert that to another source of productive capital. So if you're in Havilah uh, and later in scripture there are lands which correspond symbolically to Havilah, uh, the symbolic grammar would not be centered in agriculture, it would be centered on the mining and development of precious stones, precious metals. And you see a hint of that in Genesis chapter 4 where the city of Cain develops metallurgy uh, and, and, and so on. So cultivation, glorification, development of the world. And I've got a whole script that we're going to do sometime on the what I call the Christian concept of capital. What does Christianity have to say about capital investment? Does finance have anything to do with the Bible? Um, that might sound kind of kooky, but I think uh, you'll find it kind of interesting um, and less kooky than you might imagine. Uh, cultivation is the development of the world. It's you plant seed, you grow things up, uh, you harvest, and that is your mode of moving the world from potential to actuality. You move it from its childhood to its adulthood. You increase its value by utilizing its raw material and developing them into productive capital. Uh, the assets appreciate in view of your labor, but not only your labor taken in itself, because you know you could hit a hammer against the ground and do really hard work all day, but it wouldn't increase the value of that ground unless you were doing it towards a particular end, well, that's what agriculture fundamentally is about. You utilize the, your assets in such a way that they're restructured at, uh, at, into a higher value form. So that's the cultivation of the world. The cultivation of the world is the, produ the production of food. The production of food is that which allows the husband to fulfill his role vis-a-vis -vis the bride. He sets the household table and god does this uh in a liturgical context setting the table of showbread sending manna from heaven this is what the divine bridegroom does so why have we gone on uh into all of that to show why baal baal is called baal it is a liturgical embodiment of the devil. It is a counterfeit of God. Everything which was proper to God is claimed by the devil, but is exercised and implemented in a twisted way. God is the divine bridegroom because he sets Israel's table and anoints her head with oil, glorifying her. The devil, well, he sets the table too, but at the feast, he drinks the blood of his children. God anoints the head of Israel with oil so that they might be glorified. The devil uses that same oil to burn his followers to a crisp. It's the same family. It's the same concept being a bridegroom, a divine bridegroom. But it's implemented in radically different ways. In the book of Judges, thus we see Israel goes after the gods of the nations and God says, okay, you want to see what it's like under them? I'll give you up to there. This is the kind of culture that those deities produce. You worship the gods of the Philistines? Do you like Philistine culture? Why don't you check it out? You worship, uh, you worship the gods of the Canaanites? Great. See if you like it under Canaanite rule. 
These are sick cultures. Sick, oppressive cultures which generate in a remarkably industrious way human misery and tears. God's way is the happy way. Not necessarily in the immediate realm, but in the real long and ultimate term, God's way is the only way. So, Baal is the liturgical way of speaking about the devil. There are other ways that we can refer uh, to the devil in both testaments. We've talked about Satan is one of his titles, the accuser. Uh, Baal is another one of his titles. It's a uh, it's the liturgical embodiment of uh, God's so-called competition. The other nations, certain other nations worship Baal. It's essentially worship the devil. You want to look, see what a devil-worshipping society looks like? What does it produce? Look at the Aztecs. And I know not, I know the Aztecs are not identical to, you know, indigenous American society, whatever they want to be called. Um, but the Aztecs did exist. This is a culture which, when they felt that their troops were not, uh, uh, hadn't been to war in a while, they would send them to slaughter a village for practice. This is a society which is under the rule of the devil. This is a society which rips out the beating hearts of those it captures in war which ritually extracts as much pain as they possibly can because they believe that in pain there is power for its own sake. That is what it is like to drink of the cup of the devil in the long term. It might, it might start out because he promises something sweet. In the end, it will be very bitter. On the, finally, on the name Baal, you often see in English Bibles the phrase worthless ones. In the older translations, it is sons of Belial. Well, what is that? Think of seed of the serpent. Who's Belial? I think the, the key is Bel. Bel is a way of speaking of Baal. If you're familiar with the uh, one of the additional uh, stories in the Greek text of Daniel... It's called Bel and the dragon. It's Baal. Belzebub. So you have sons of Bel. So if you've rendered every instance of worthless ones to sons of Belial, you would see how explicitly and how often the devil was referenced. And by the way, in these very texts where we're hearing about the sons of Belial, we're reading about evil spirits coming and tormenting King Saul. So it is not as if this is running under the surface. This is something which is on the surface of the text. This is why God draws a sword, sweeps it through the heavens. He has a war in heaven at the same time he has a war on earth. We're going to talk specifically about that text in Isaiah 34 in uh, a video in this same series. So what's another title for this figure, this great enemy of mankind? Have it Nakash. That's the word which is used in Genesis 3. And this is the hinge on which this whole point turns. Nakash is very much like the word seraph. I have up on the screen Numbers 21, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, 
Make a fiery serpent and set it on the pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Well, what is the Hebrew which is underlying this phrase, fiery serpent? It's seraph. Seraph simply means fiery. And this is what's called a substantive use of the adjective. Okay, it's the use of an adjective as a noun, because you insert in brackets, essentially, the noun. So you have an adjective used without a noun. It's taken for granted that the adjective has an implied noun. So seraph is here used in terms of a substantive adjective. A fiery serpent. Seraph overlaps very, um, uh, in a very significant way with serpentine language. In the very next verse, Numbers 21.9, the word nakash is used. Nakash is the word that is used in Genesis chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 6, you have the word seraph or seraphim used. Seraphim is the plural of seraph. You have it used, undoubtedly, it refers to celestial angelic beings. And these beings here in Numbers 21 seem to be supernatural in character. So here's the question. This is what I want to leave you with for today. If seraph means both a heavenly being and a serpent, and if it is used in certain texts interchangeably with Nahash, then why is it so inconceivable that in Genesis chapter 3, a text which addresses the great conflict between man and death, a text which clearly presents this serpent as a kind of cosmic villain, who plays an instrumental role in bringing a cosmic catastrophe into the world. Why is it so inconceivable that Nakash, like Seraph, can refer to a heavenly being? Look at, look at, look at uh, the, the religious imagery of antiquity. Serpentine beings are everywhere because serpentine beings are linked with the angelic realms. And serpents are not an image or symbol of evil because God made them and God doesn't make evil. Serpents are an image of craftiness, of wisdom, uh, uh, of a particular kind of management. Our Lord says, be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. So it's a mistake to just take this religious iconography as evil intrinsically. It has a particular context. And that's imagery appears in the Bible just as it appears throughout antiquity because the grammar of the biblical world is in reality the grammar of the real world and the real world is the world that is shaped out of the tradition that was transmitted from God to Adam to Noah and so on and so forth. Uh, this is getting into the deep weird as James Jordan so memorably calls it. So serpentine beings are linked with the angelic realms one last point on Nakash. Just as Seraph can refer to a heavenly being in virtue of his being called a uh, burning one, a bright kind of burning with divine splendor and glory. It's why 
Uh, in Psalm 104, we read that the heavenly ministers of God, the angels, they're a flame of fire. They're fused with the glory of God. Uh, that's who they are. So they're called by uh, this word, burning. Uh, and when Isaiah is touched by a burning coal, he becomes, as it were, an extension of this seraphic heavenly council. The seraphim are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what does uh, uh, Isaiah say throughout the rest of the book? One of his favorite titles, Holy One of Israel. Because Isaiah has become a member of this community by virtue of being burned himself. He catches fire. There's a difference between the object which when it's burned turns to ash and the object which when it's burned turns to fire. Just one of these many images reflecting the nature of God's union with the world. Well, Nakash can be used as a substantive just as seraph can. Nakash can be rendered as bright one because Nakash can mean bright. So we see in uh, Job chapter 41, a Leviathan. Now Leviathan is a dragon kind of figure. Isaiah 27 refers to a serpent. Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 27 uses the word Nakash. It uses the language of God taking his sword and slaying this great serpent, this great uh, dragon. Uh, uh, and Job 41, it, Isaiah 27 calls him Leviathan. Job 41 says Leviathan, who is king of all the sons of pride. Leviathan stands uh, at the end of the book, matching what we read about at the beginning of the book, which is Satan in the heavenly council. Uh, Job has been made wise throughout chapters 38 and following, and just as God gave, just as God brought animals to Adam and taught him wisdom through the animals, finally bringing him into an encounter with the serpent where he was tested, so also Job first encounters a series of animals and is told by God the lessons that are derived from their natures, Job 38 and following, and then finally he's brought into uh, uh, this vision of Leviathan corresponding to the serpent in uh, uh, Genesis 3 uh, and to Satan in uh, the first two chapters of the book. Uh, Leviathan is said to have eyes as the dawn. I think we'll talk about this again in a, a later slide. Uh, likewise, uh, Isaiah 14. This is just a, a glimpse ahead to what we'll be talking about in future uh, uh, parts of this discussion. Isaiah 14 describes the day star, the sun of the morning. Now, this is often taken as a reference to the devil, and I think that's correct. But it's often taken as a kind of past biography of the devil, whereas I think it's better to take it as a prophetic text, which is written in the past tense, just as the suffering servant prophecy, Isaiah 53, is written in the past tense. This is what's called the prophetic perfect. Prophetic perfect is when a prophet writes as if something has already happened in order to signify the absolute certainty of God fulfilling the word he has spoken. So Isaiah 14 describes the king of Babylon, and Babylon refers back to Genesis 11. Okay, Genesis 11, Babylon, Babylon, same word, BBL, in terms of English transliteration. And Babylon signifies and corresponds to the city of Cain. In other words, it is the political embodiment of rebellious humanity. 
And we can see this very same principle happening in Isaiah. This is not just something I'm throwing out there. You see this happening in the climactic uh, chapters, Isaiah 24 to 27. Uh, these chapters refer to a conflict between an archetypal city of God and an archetypal rebellious unfaithful city and this is the climax of the oracles uh, concerning the nations beginning in Isaiah uh, 13 with a vision about Babylon uh, and ending finally in Isaiah chapter uh, uh, 23 I believe which refers to the very territory of the uh, primal Babelic slash Babylonian civilization 23 verse 13 Behold the land of the Chaldeans, this is the people that uh, was not or has become nothing. Assyria destined it for wild beasts. So Assyria and Babylon are often considered in relation to each other because Nimrod, who was the architect of the Babel project, uh, in fact founded both civilizations. Okay, so uh, that's it for today. Uh, you know, I know it's been kind of a free stream of consciousness kind of thing, but um, if you really have a problem with that, uh, just honestly let me know. You can send me an, an email uh, uh, if you would really prefer to not hear the streams of consciousness. But I have heard from some people that you know they enjoy the tangents as much as the main point of the video. So uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, thank you so much for watching. Uh, congratulations if you've made it all the way through. I have the utmost uh, respect and reverence for your endurance. Uh, I could never listen to myself for that long. I, I start to find the way that I modulate my voice to be incredibly irritating. Uh, <laughs> in any case, uh, thank you so much. And uh, by God's will, I will see you tomorrow. Uh, my plan is to record several videos today so that I can set them up to upload uh, in succession once per day. So uh, I hope that will work out. Please remember me in your prayers and I will talk to you soon.